0: Give Joseph. Welcome back from vacation, by the way. Uh, And Leah, round of applause. Our worship band, they're doing amazing. Uh, You guys are so gifted and talented. We're grateful for you. Well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, oftentimes your message is hidden uh, in unfamiliar places. Uh, But for those with eyes to see, Uh, You reveal something incredibly beautiful uh, to us. And so, God, as we prepare for the message uh, this morning, as you've been challenging me, as you've been opening my eyes, God, I pray that you would would use what you have been uh, stirring within me uh, to communicate your word, your truth, your love, your grace, your compassion, uh, your ability to survive uh, to the congregation here at Sanctuary. Pray that you would be glorified. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, if you haven't been, well, if you're new here this morning or if you haven't uh, been here in a while, we've been working through a book uh, by John Eldridge called Beautiful Outlaw where he presents some uncommon ways of thinking about and experiencing Jesus to get us to see God's love in the kingdom in a fuller way. Eldridge begins the book with a simple prayer. He says, he asks, Jesus, I ask for you, for the real you. For us to have Jesus is to have the greatest treasure in all the world. So we embarked on this journey of getting to know a more nuanced and robust Jesus, a Jesus with a broad range of characteristics and personality traits, a Jesus who is less wrapped in snow-right white robes and six inches off the ground and more gritty, approachable, and real. And we, we started the series looking at a playful Jesus uh, who appeared to a grief-stricken mourners on the road, and he dared them to see him. He changed their story and our story by prayer, playfully revealing himself and inviting us to go deeper Pastor Rose then introduced us to the intentionally fierce Jesus, uh, the Jesus who opposed injustice and encouraged us to be courageous as well. Pastor Rose challenged us by asking us, how are we going to be intentionally fierce when we are confronting injustice today? Pastor Edren then moved us to see God's abundant side at a wedding party where Jesus went to extreme lengths to show favor by creating lots and lots of wine. The question for us then is, what are we gonna do in light of Jesus' extravagant love? We then looked at how Jesus was disruptively honest, confronting those in power with truth and how that disruptive honesty continued in the lives like Fannie Lou Hamer. We're called to be honest disruptors whose eyes are open to the truth we couldn't see before and then to say something if we see something that isn't in alignment with God's heart and purpose. Well, last week, uh, we moved into uh, how Jesus even appeared to be scandalous, to, the, to extend his grace and freedom to those in need. I loved the reflection that Jesus went to scandalous places to bring freedom to scandalous people, people like me, maybe people like you. And as we've been going through these different facets of Jesus' personality, one of the things that I've noticed, and maybe you have too, is that Jesus doesn't just wear these characteristics one at a time and when it's convenient or falsely manipulative way. He, he just he doesn't wear them and then take them off as soon as the job is done like a chameleon, rather they're interwoven together. It's almost like Jesus might actually be real rather than a one-dimensional figure we're often presented with. And if he's manipulative, it's in the very best sense of the word that Jesus is very clear about his mission and is willing to do whatever it takes to get us to see the real kingdom of God and the reality of God's love for us. So, I like how Eldridge uses provocative language to get us to lean in a bit further. Maybe he knows that when we hear something different or something feels off pitch, that we respond to it. We examine it more closely so that we can more fully understand it. And when when applied to the life of Jesus, we begin to see something quite amazing, a beautiful outlaw indeed. Well, if you thought last week's description of Jesus being scandalous was a bit over the top on because, uh, because of, well, the fun's just getting started, because Eldridge wants us to think about a Jesus who is cunning. Can you say that word with me? Cunning. Amen. Well, when I think about a person, when the person of Jesus and who he was, one of the last words that comes to mind is cunning, Right? When I think of cunning people, I think of those who are maybe unscrupulous. Now, maybe some of you are these professions, so don't take it too hard. But when I think of unscrupulous people, I think of salespeople, uh, used car salespeople in particular, maybe spies, political operatives, lawyers, bill collectors. I've gotten those calls. They're unscrupulous. (laughs) Well, people who have an agenda who are seeking to take advantage of me or a situation for self-gain. And when I think of cunning people, I think of those who are willing to say or do anything to get their way. They're manipulative and shrewd. In fact, the definition of cunning reads this way. Cunning, having or showing skill in achieving one's ends by deceit or evasion. And here are some synonyms for the word cunning. Crafty, wily, artful, guileful, devious, sly, knowing, scheming, designing, tricky, slippery, slick, manipulative, Machiavellian, deceitful, deceptive, duplicitous, Janus-faced, which means two-faced. My daughter Allie had to tell me what that meant, didn't know it. So that's her parentheses up there. So cunning is not exactly the word that first pops to mind when thinking about Jesus, is it? We must scan all the way down the page to the last entry before we get in the ballpark with the kind of cunning that describes Jesus, ingenuity, what resources of energy and cunning it took just to survive. So beginning to get a picture of the kind of cunning person Jesus was, let's look at, the kind of exam- at one of the examples where Jesus demonstrated cunning to both survive and disarm those who are attempting to stop him, let's turn to Matthew chapter twenty-two, verses fifteen through twenty-two. I'm going to read from the Amplified version because it just reveals a bit more of what's going on here. Uh, so, turn with me uh, if you've got uh, your your Bible on your phone or uh, in paper, or you can look on the screen. It says them. Then the Pharisees went and conspired together, plotting how to trap him by distorting what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and that you teach the way of God truthfully without concerning yourself uh, about what anyone thinks or says of your teachings. For you are impartial and do not seek anyone's favor and you treat all people alike, regardless of status. Tell us then, What do you think? Is it permissible according to Jewish law and tradition to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, asked, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarii, a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, The emperor Tiberius, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were caught off guard, and they left him and went away. So, let's notice a few things in the text and unpack what they mean for us today as modern-day followers of Jesus. The first thing is that the people of uh, the group of people called the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, right? Now, who were the Pharisees? They weren't necessarily terrible people, like we oftentimes think. They loved God. They believed in life after death. They believed in the resurrection of the body, and they even thought that the Messiah was coming. So they're not exactly terrible people. But they and they were also followers of Jewish law. But they wanted to maintain the traditions. Uh, But they were threatened by this guy from Nazareth, who was telling, who was stealing their thunder and the people were starting to take note. They were taking note because he not only knew the law, but he preached a freedom from the legalism that was being used to oppress the people. The Pharisees were so threatened that they started conspiring with a political group called the Herodians. And this is actually noteworthy. The Herodians favored submitting to the Herods, which means to Rome, to Caesar, uh, for political and economic power. Uh, they enjoyed both the benefits that the religious position brought them, uh, along with those uh, their religious position brought them, along with those gained by political alliance with Rome. This support of Jewish uh, of Rome compromised their Jewish independence in the minds of the Pharisees, made it difficult for the Herodians and the Pharisees to unite on anything except with one notable exception, and that was Jesus. That's right. Have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Yeah, well, that's certainly the case here. And I, I, I know the paths of the Pharisees myself. I once worked in politics, believe it or not, and I was on a campaign staff. And, and one time, we learned that the opposition party was trying to discredit our candidate in the eyes of young voters by showing a disparaging film about a decision that the candidate had made, and they were showing that on college campuses. It was a highly racialized film that was filled with deception uh, and fear of the other, and an attempt to, to upend their plans and to show, to show the film I created a, and create a counter-movement I attempted to get information about their plans by posing as a supporter. I called the chair of the student group uh, that was showing the film, and and I couldn't get a hold of them, and I, I left a message. One small problem, though, was rather than leaving my direct number at the campaign office, I left the main number, at the campaign office. Now, when you call the main number of a campaign office, they typically answer the phone with, you are, thank you for calling the campaign of... Well, the young chair uh, had me, but he didn't let me know. Uh, He strung me along and asked me some more questions and let me dig a nice grave for myself before upending my plans. Well, you've maybe also heard the phrase, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Yeah, learned my lesson. Well, back to the Pharisees and Herodians. Um, How often do we see these kinds of alliances for the sake of expediency? How often have we compromised our own beliefs uh, and values to maintain power and control? Too often, Uh, The church has been a pawn or worse complicit uh, in the suppression of others to maintain its standing in the world. Yeah, maybe uh, the worst atrocity committed by the church happened in the colony of Virginia in the 1600s before the formation of the United States. The missionary movement was in full swing and there was concern amongst those doing this uh, that the conversion and bab- about the p- conversion and baptism of African slaves. See, one of the tenets, and it's interesting, we're doing baptism here in a, in a couple of weeks, but one of the tenets about baptism is that if you are baptized in Christ, you are free in Christ. You are no longer a slave, but you are a sister and brother uh, in the faith. So this obviously presented a challenge to the slave owners of Virginia. Uh, And rather than pursuing Jesus, the church pursued accommodation and determined that baptism was a spiritual freedom, not a physical freedom. And what followed then was a a pigmentation of, of, of of the faith, that there were insiders and outsiders to the faith. Uh, and that eventually led to uh, race in America. It was the church that developed and helped develop race in America. I invite you, if you would want to read more about this chapter in church's history, to read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. It's just recently out, fascinating book uh, that begins to unpack uh, some of this reality. Now, remember... We're talking about how Jesus is cunning today. And as we read the story, we are presented with an example of the bad kind of cunning first, the kind that I tried. Uh, Listen to those who are trying to trick Jesus. They lay it on thick. They say, teacher, we know that you are sincere and that you teach the way of God truthfully without concerning yourself about what anyone thinks or says of your teachings. For you are impartial and do not seek anyone's favor. And you treat all people li- regardless uh, treat all people alike regardless of status. Through flattery, they're trying to lull Jesus into a false sense of security. But here's the deal: they are only clever by half. If there's one thing our Jesus is, it's a survivor. Now the flannel board Jesus is all knowing, and at any moment could snap his fingers and magically do whatever he wanted, right? Uh, maybe even including crushing these guys? Well, not so. Jesus is cunning because he is first and foremost a survivor. Jesus is a survivor. Remember, this is the same Jesus who from his very first breath has been hunted by those in power. Herod killed all the recently born male children. From that moment to this moment, Uh, Around 30 years has passed. Do we really think that those in power have stopped hunting? Not a chance. When you're hunted, you develop a heightened awareness of your surroundings and the motivations of people. You learn to discern their intent, and you also learn to communicate truth indirectly to your friends and survivors. Maybe you would speak in parables so that not everyone would understand Perhaps you would sing songs or signs that could be used to signal safety or threat. And as I was thinking about this part of Jesus' character, my mind connected immediately to the reality as I know it about the Underground Railroad and the fight and flight for freedom uh, that Leah talked about. At every step in the way of the way, those in power hunted those seeking freedom. They employed every kind of deception, imaginable. To succeed, those who fled save slavery for freedom were cunning in the very best sense of the word. And as Leah shared, one of the ways they were cunning was in how they sang songs. That were more than simple ways of communicating faith, but they literally communicated life and freedom as well by embedding key messages for survival. The songs, the phrases, the quilts, the drums, the practices were used to guide the slaves to freedom. But the flight to freedom doesn't just begin in Memphis and end in Ohio. It continues to be present in the streets, in the classrooms, the courtrooms, the boardrooms, and so many other places in America today. Yeah, that's why it's vitally important to do what Pastor Edren said a couple of weeks ago, and that is to, if you see something, say something. And if you're an ally, it's time to be counted and counted upon to be intentionally fierce, generous, playful, honest, and cunning. Yeah, and I want to I want to park the big idea of Jesus' cunning right here for us. If you remember anything about this sermon today, it should be this. We live in a dangerous world where there is very real evil. That evil seeks to destroy us, where our end, where our hope comes from. Our flannel board, one-dimensional Jesus, is not going to save us. Only the real Jesus who survived and was cunning enough can guide us through the traps that are before us. Being cunning requires us to be wise and courageous like Jesus, like those who braved the underground railroad to freedom. So it's at this point that the Pharisees try and spring their trap. They've been clever, so they think, and they ask, tell us, what do you think? Is it permissible, according to Jewish law and tradition, to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? What they've done is set up a false binary or a false dichotomy, a binary question with just a yes or a no answer. Perhaps they're thinking that if they can just get Jesus to say yes, it will discredit him in the eyes of the adoring crowds who knew that it was a sin to carry any graven image, and they were adamantly opposed to Rome. Well, the the Pharisees can then call him a hypocrite and be done with him because he would be discredited. If they can get him to say, no, well, the Herodians will have him arrested as a political terrorist for trying to overthrow Caesar by inciting the crowd to disobey Roman rule. You can literally hear Jesus scoff at them. Jesus deadpans them saying, why are you testing me? You hypocrites, show me the coin used for poll tax. And so they brought him a denarii, a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness? Whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said, the emperor Tiberius, Caesar's. And then he said to them, then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Like a chess master, Jesus checkmates them in one move. I don't know if you can do that, but Jesus does it. (laughs) Yeah. Being cunning is knowing exactly what the other party is thinking and in what they are trying to do, and at just the right time, either evading them or engaging them. And when we do this, it absolutely disarms people. It causes them to freeze, and it gives us the opportunity to either escape or to press home the truth. And in the case of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't expect this. They were caught flat. And when Jesus delivers that final answer, all they can do is is hang their heads and kick dirt as they walk on down the road. They've been served by the master of cunning and they've been shown the door. You can almost imagine Jesus saying, next time, next time. But the Pharisees and the Herodians do have a serious question uh, that we should pay attention to and Jesus does give a serious answer to it. That question really is, how do we live in the world and follow God at the same time? That's really the question that's being asked about taxes at the end of the day Don't we all face that reality? Don't we all need to choose how we're going to faithfully live Jesus in our everyday lives? To actually live Jesus and not just our version of Jesus requires wisdom and courage and discernment because way too often we create Jesus in our own image rather than letting Jesus mold us into his disciples, true disciples, This is true for all of us, but particularly for those of us in majority culture, we need to pay particular attention to which version of Jesus we are following. Are we following the radical Jesus who is cunning and identifies with the oppressed, poor, and the powerless, or to the culturally captive Jesus? To live the real Jesus requires cunning in the very best sense because we live in a dangerous world that seeks to trap us and divide us rather than redeeming and freeing us. As a pastor uh, who is sometimes active on social media, I get all sorts of posts uh, to my Facebook page regarding uh, the issues we confront today. Maybe you do too. Um, But oftentimes, I find that they are from people who have actually unfriended me uh, maybe some time ago, but they still feel this need to drive by uh, to weigh in on a post, or they feel in need to, to goad me, um, it's fascinating. I, I, I feel most often that their comments are an attempt to trap me uh, rather than to ask a real question or engage in a real dialogue. Uh, recently, I commented on on something, and I managed to get the response hashtag Pharisee. Kind of felt good about that, made me smile in, in a kind of way. Um, well, let me um, raise our blood pressure just a little bit this morning, because sometimes their their questions uh, get me thinking, uh, and they they strike a little close to home and I maybe you've got your own list, but this is some of my list because well, well, now some of these issues they're complex, and uh, as I, I talk about them, I do think it would be inappropriate to stand here uh, and try and unpack them today. But I do think if we're going to be cunning like Jesus, we can't avoid tough questions either. And I was reminded uh, in my preparation that issues of oppression aren't the same, but they are interconnected. So rather than unpacking these questions, I will end with a framework uh, for considering them that is hopefully cunning uh, in the way of Jesus. Uh, obviously, it is Black History Month, so let's start out the gate with, with racism in America. And those friends who like to ask, if it, is, it, is it just black lives matter or do blue lives matter too? Mm. Yeah, that'll make you uncomfortable uh, a little bit, uh, although I think the answer, uh, we can move through that one pretty easily. The next one that sometimes comes up is, how about gender and the Me Too movement? and those friends who wonder if we've gone too far in pursuing sexual harassment claims. Are we getting a little more uncomfortable wiggling in the seats a little bit? Well, how about inclusion and rights of GLBTQIA individuals? And questions raised about whether they were born that way or if they choose to live that way. That one will make you uncomfortable. Hmm. Well, I know these are serious issues, And much of the dialogue in these issues just hasn't risen to the level of Jesus' cunning and discernment. Rather, it has degraded into dehumanizing places. And there are many, many other issues that force us down some dangerous paths, but the last one I want to raise today, uh, though, is abortion because the conversation or lack thereof has been used artfully to divide the family of God into political camps. We sometimes phrase the binary question as right to life or a woman's right to choose. These are heavy questions that begin to challenge us to our core of our being. And when they are phrased as binary yes-no questions, my heart and my brain, they explode because these are truly complex issues that impact real people. And I'm glad to be part of a church and a denomination that thoughtfully approaches challenges of being human and seeks to follow Jesus by providing hope and perspective. Our denomination over the years has passed several resolutions on topics like this that provide a framework for thinking about our response as faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, and if you're interested in reading some of those, I, you can find them at covchurch.org resolutions. Uh, people like us, who have squirmed in seats uh, and have read through Scripture, have put together some great thoughts uh, about some of those things. So, what are we to learn from Jesus? I think the first thing is to focus on the person in front of us and be in the moment. It's so easy to focus on the issue and the abstract rather than the actual person. What does it feel like to be fill-in-the-blank? What are they experiencing What are their hopes and their dreams, remembering the whole time that they are made in the image of God and that God loves them and has already died for them? Throughout this series, we've been reminded of how Jesus saw people, uh, saw them as as real, uh, saw the real them that was hidden somewhere underneath the surface waiting to be released. What if we saw people rather than issues, a prerequisite uh, of Of seeing people is to be fully aware of the space we occupy in the conversation in all those issues I named, I need to be fully aware that I am a heterosexual white male. I think it 's fair to say that in every situation, Jesus was fully aware of the space he occupied as well. The second thing we must do uh, is to give give our response a holy pause and fully listen to the other party. Too often we are so quick to respond that we respond out of our own knowledge, our own feelings, maybe our own sense of defensiveness and and our experiences, rather than with any real discernment or relationship. If that means saying, I don't know, tell me more, or let me think and pray about that and get back to you, or maybe the harder one is, let's study this together and see what God says to us our discomfort might be a holy invitation to a godly conversation that could be transformational. When we fully seek Jesus, these holy pauses do lead to discernment and wisdom. When you have wisdom and discernment, you are less likely to be thrown off balance and you can respond with the cunning of Jesus. There are definitely other things to mention, but I want to end with this question uh, to ask in every situation. What does redemption look like in this situation? Jesus didn't want to destroy his adversaries. If that was the case, going to the cross was an unusual tactic to say the least. Jesus' aim was redemption. What does redemption look like and what are the underlying issues that keep us from redemption? Remember, the courage Jesus displayed when he inserted himself between those being persecuted and those who were doing the condemning. Imagine where that might be in a situation that you're faced with. Sanctuary, we live in, da- in a dangerous world where there is very real evil. That evil seeks to destroy us at every turn. It seeks to confuse us about where our hope comes from and our flannel board one-dimensional Jesus isn't going to save us. Only the real Jesus, who survived and was cunning enough, can guide us through the traps that are before us. Being cunning requires us to be wise and courageous like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for for us as I invite our our worship team forward. I also invite our our prayer and altar team forward as well. Uh, Maybe this has risen something up for you. Maybe you're, you're thinking about maybe some of those questions or your own, own list or maybe there's a, a struggle for survival that you're facing as well. Our prayer and altar team uh, is, is here to pray with you through those, through those situations in life. But let me pray. God, uh, Lord Jesus, you were cunning and you survived. Not only did you survive, but you pointed us to the way, to the kingdom of God. You introduced us to grace and mercy. Uh, You introduced us to what true freedom uh, can look like, a freedom that is both spiritual and physical. Your deepest desire was that we would walk in truth and hope. And so, God, uh, we come before you and ask you, help us to be cunning like you. Turn us into beautiful outlaws like you uh, so that we can be light in the darkness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.